Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And welcome to History in Technicolor with me, Wolf O'Neill. And me, David Crowther. And David, this is your episode, am I correct? It is my episode. And you've selected the best movie we could all possibly watch, correct? Uh, not necessarily, not necessarily. Okay, what, what have how, you selected? What film would that be, apart from the Monty? Uh, we can't do The Last Monty because it's not a history The movie. Last Monty. Ah, that classic. <laughs> <laughs> we can't do the full Monty because it's not a history movie. Well, no, it's about the... Strikes, right? Yeah, it's not very historical, is it? Uh huh. Although I'm interested by your. Yeah, yeah, let's have a look. Does it capture the time perfectly? (laughs) Ah, it probably does because there's a lot of shrink wrapping to reduce weight in those days. You don't know what I'm talking about, do you? No, Dave I was worried it was. Uh, I was worried it was like a phallic thing. You've been worried about you, what, your <laughs> mind is it's disgusting. Well, it's because cool, they all say their trousers. I was your, like, what shrink wrapping? Right with your corn dogs and your. <laughs> Shrink wrapping, I don't know. Anyway, I'm this week. Ask me what I'm going to film. I'm going to do. What what film are we doing this week? Yeah, David? I could have just said no. Um, this week I am doing Immortal Beloved. What what's Immortal Beloved? Immortal Beloved is a movie. Yeah. And tell me, tell me more. <laughs> I want to know more about it. I thought you were going to ask me why I chose it. Right, why am I proposing this movie? So I'm proposing it because it's about Beethoven, Ludwig van, rather than his brother Dave. Dave Beethoven. Dave Beethoven. Beethoven has always been and will always be my favourite composer. Better even than Led Zepp. Why? I know. Wow. Uh, as was my dad. My, he was my dad's favourite as well. Your dad so. was also better than Led Zepp. And, no. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Really, okay, no. He really wasn't, actually. <laughs> um, in musical terms, obviously, as a father. Should we just keep going? Um, Ima- imagine if Robert Palmer was your dad. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. Somehow. Anyway, um, so yes, there's a connection uh, Dad and I, because Dad was always playing all over the house because he was very keen on it. And after we watched Amadeus, and after, of course, the triumph that was Amadeus, I've always been very keen to see the same, you know, amazing film that brought out this genius um, that I Were you too. prompted because we did Bill and Ted? Um, a little bit, but more, actually, is because somebody on Facebook had had a discussion about how I both love, uh, love Beethoven, and she, I think, really likes the movie. So I said, oh, yeah, I'll do Immortal Beloved. In, ter- in terms of classical composers, if you rate Beethoven number one, who do you have at two and three? Well, it's quite difficult because, um, of course, this is a matter of preference. You know, I yeah. have, do not have the ability to say a, a is better than B, even if such a thing were a sensible question to ask. But in terms of my personal preference, yeah, that's he's got to be know. number one. Henry Purcell's probably going to be number two. Okay. And then we're going to go probably probably Mozart, maybe Schubert. So we're talking, you know, the classics here. Very nice. Handel, I should think. Well, what about you? Uh, I have no opinion. You have no opinion? I, I'm, How much? I'm guessing into it. I'm uh, listening to uh, the classic radio on my drives a little bit more. Is that right? I, okay. Alan Titchmarsh is leading me in. Is he? Is that what he does? Is he on... Is he on hmm, Some Lord. mornings, yeah. Good luck. So... So how much exposure do you have to, for want of a better word, classical music? Whatever classical music is played in popular culture and in movies, I absorb, but I don't necessarily know who it's by or what the song is. So sat down and listened to Beethoven's Ninth. No, but I'll know what it is. Right. I could never tell you what it was going to sound like, but if I hear it, I'll be like, oh, yeah, I know that song. I would say that's a big disadvantage to watching this movie. Although it didn't, wasn't a disadvantage for Amadeus, but certain things. No, but what I found with both films was I knew the songs... When they played, I yeah. could recognise the okay, music. Okay, you could recognise the music. It was, except the quintets, presumably. Yeah, I can't yeah. recognise every 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 no, piece, indeed. obviously. So the film. Yeah. What what are, so what is the film about? Nineteen ninety four movie. It is written directed by Bernard Rose, who also did music videos. Would you like to tell me which music he, video? He has he a did? surprisingly big catalogue of terrible work. <laughs> is that right? Well, the Frankie Goes to Hollywood music video was absolutely fine, wasn't it? Yeah, but that's right at the beginning of his career. <laughs> okay, he got worse than that. And then he did Candyman? Yeah, which is okay, I guess. I haven't seen it. I'm not a horror aficionado, was it? What was it like? It, it's it's kind of a classic, but it's like an, it's like an average film. Okay, so... It's when we say Candyman three times in the mirror, and then he comes to kill you with his hook. Oh, okay. Um, so, so the prognosis, what you're saying is that not a brilliant director certainly doesn't jump out of the... Um, Best no, and the, the, and the fact that you've gone back to name Candyman, which is early 90s, he hasn't really done anything since then. Indeed. But has continually worked. Nonetheless, he had a theory about Beethoven, which will come out in the movie. It's, it's quite good stars. So it's got Gary Oldman, Isabella Rossellini, yep. who's uh, thoroughly good, actually. Miriam Margoyles. Miriam Margoyles, yes, absolutely right. That was a bit of a, a shout for the books, wasn't it? Uh, Yaron Crabber who I think I've seen lots of things where I thought he was quite good, but in this, he was a bit wooden, actually. He's Schindler. Oh, OK. Um, and Barry Humphreys. Did you spot Barry Humphreys? The composer? No, Barry Humphreys, the, you know, Dame Edna Everidge. Oh, oh, no, wait, who was he in this? He's, in, he's Metternich. That doesn't help. <laughs> <laughs> he's the German-Austrian Chancellor to whom Beethoven goes and talks, I think, to try and persuade him to get custody of Karl. His well, nephew. if I ever watch the film again, I'll look out for <laughs> Barry Humphreys. But Metternich is a very famous historical uh, figure. Anyway, the film. It is impossible, quite impossible, of course, not to compare it every second as it's going on with Amadeus. Did you find that? Yes. What's the plot of this film, though? So, the film traces Beethoven's life, effectively, and actually quite in a, quite a similar to Amadeus way, it it's starts been, at the it's end. It's a bit more non-linear, though. 
Oh, it starts at the end, though. Yeah, yeah. And and it actually is a bit more... It is less linear than Amadeus, and therein lies one of its problems. But nonetheless, the same... It does move, actually. It takes you a while to realise that it's moving chronologically, but it does. And um, what's the the decision factor which makes it decide where it's going in this kind of non-linear structure? So it follows through a... You're feeding me questions, aren't you? It's very good. It follows this great mystery about Beethoven's life, which is that when he died, a three-part letter drops out of his will, which is written to an immortal beloved. And it's written to the immortal beloved, and it's this love letter. Um, and people have tried to understand who it is, and there are many theories about who the immortal beloved was. And Bernard Rose has a theory. And the film follows loosely a sort of combination of a chronology and follows Schindler as he's trying to uncover the truth. Schindler being uh, an, uh, the secretary of Ludwig and presented in this movie as a sort of a mate, a and, confidant. And basically every time he thinks he's found someone who could be the immortal beloved, he goes to talk to them and try and discover if they were. Yes. And then if he, that's a dead end, he tries to yeah. piece the information and go on to the next one. And in so doing, they tell a part of Ludwig's life as it were, going forward. There are a lot of bonnets in the movie. I'm sure you noticed that too. Yep. And some of those bonnets are not really not attractive, are they? It traces Beethoven's relationship with his brother, Johann and Kasma. It shows them rowing with them and being rather dominating and overbearing. He is an eldest brother, an eldest son, whose parents die relatively young. His mother dies when he's relatively young. His father is an alcoholic. And so there is this thing that Beethoven essentially has to look after Johann and Kasper a lot in his life. And he has all of that duty thing about having to look after his brother and having to be the one that looks out for them. And that, unfortunately, manifests itself in... Sometimes you show flashes of the brothers getting on, but more generally, it's Beethoven acting like a rather overbearing father, uh, which doesn't uh, do well. It paints a picture of a promiscuous Beethoven, so promiscuous... As he's young, Beethoven has all these affairs. He loses his first love, uh, Josephine von Brunswick, because it's discovered that he's going deaf. He falls out of his second love of his life, who then he falls out with over some other things he's doing, which I'll come to. And meanwhile, so this is all very stressful, and his brother Caspar dies of consumption, tuberculosis, and then he gets into a big turf war with his sister-in-law over custody of the child of Joanna and Caspar's son, Carl, who is Beethoven's nephew, of course. And rather horrendously, Beethoven forces the court or goes to court and gets custody of Carl and then Carl lives with him. And through this process, you kind of see a, a moral collapse of Beethoven. He gets his level of hevel reduces alarmingly um there's one stage where he he's in a portico outside and some kids come and start kicking him around and <laughs> those he, kids are not good actors that's <laughs> yes, why well, you can say that about quite a few people and then yep and then it cuts to he's lying on the floor and he's urinated himself yes indeed. and there's, so. a, there's a stream of pee that's running down from his well he was he'd been, he'd been drinking an awful lot i mean you know he'd he was, he was desperate at the time, obviously, which is why he was being so grumpy with the kids. So, um, so it's what we see is a Beethoven who is behaving not at all well, and is 
a most unattractive character. You know, though he's it's not coming across well at all. And then you get near the end of the movie, you get to the point where his music is present throughout, and actually the director is the director of music is Sir George Sholte, very famous interpreter of Beethoven's music, and so could not have a better musical director. And actually the music works well. And at the end you have this very famous occasion where he plays the Ninth Symphony, which is very unusual in being having a choral element to it, and has this very famous tune, the Ode to Joy, which presumably you'd heard before. Yep. Um, and in this last scene, there is, I think, a not exactly a justification, but there is a there is a coming together where it is explained and brought together all these various threads of what a brutal man Beethoven is being, what a difficult person he is, and it is brought together so that his music and his personality are in a way brought together. And then after that, we have the big reveal about who the immortal beloved is, according to Bernard Rose. And then roll the credits. So, how much, on a scale of 1 to 10, well, we're going to mark that later, so don't do the scale of 1 to 10, you didn't like this movie, did you, Wolf? I've been looking at your body music ever since you came into the show. My body music? <laughs> well, you know, we're talking about Beethoven. Your body music. It's kind of, you know, the tail isn't wagging, the ears aren't up. Uh, had you heard about the movie before it started? No, only from you. Okay. And you also had Amadeus in mind as you went through it. So, yeah. And how did you felt it compared to Amadeus? Uh, there is no comparison. Okay. Amadeus is not in a perfect movie, mm -hmm. which had been captivated completely for over three hours. Um, I was pretty much done with this movie uh, right. by the midway point. Okay. Did you find in any way that by the time you'd finished with it, you felt a little bit better about the time you'd invested in it? No. No. So that last that last scene didn't work for you either. No, I. It's because I can't help but feel like what. Here's the quote. This is where I think it's just weird. I'll forgive him because of the ode to joy. Even though I had hated him for so long and he tried to destroy me, I had to go. So she goes to his concert, and then because he plays the ode to joy and it's so good, she's like, yeah. It's fine that you destroyed me at every possible opportunity and you hated me for your entire life. That's a good piece of music. Right. And I feel like the whole movie is like, oh, yeah, but forget about all the bad things because check this out, press play. Right. And, and, and I think, uh, yeah, I just think that it's, I can't reconcile what it's actually saying about the man. And in that sequence, the music's playing and he's a child and he goes to swim in some river. And runs away from his house. Goes to swim in some river for crying out loud. We should explain probably here something what's going on. So the last scene is Bernard Rose's big idea. Should we tell it? Let's not tell the big idea. The woman that Beethoven has persecuted over Karl, and indeed Ludwig has also made Karl's life a misery in the process, becomes reconciled after Ludwig's, in fact, before Ludwig's death, actually, becomes reconciled to Beethoven. Um, so that is the reconciliation you're talking about, which you find deeply unconvincing. I just, every <clears throat> scene of this movie is completely unconvincing. Okay. I'm going to disagree with it a little bit, but not an awful lot. I mean, certainly, I wanted to see in Immortal Blood, and kind of knew I wasn't going to see something of Amadeus's level, but still wanted it to be a celebration of music. I think, actually, it is very unflinching... He doesn't hide any of the uh, incredibly unpleasant things 
Beethoven does. It doesn't hide any of his grumpiness, of his arrogance, his, you know, the appalling way he treats uh, Joanna Rice, uh, the overbearing way. In fact, the way he treats his brothers is probably quite unsympathetic. You could easily paint a much better picture about that, about a young boy left on his own who has to help his brothers survive. Um, but then but then the film brings you back. The final scene, it starts to bring you back to when he was a child and he was abused by his dad. Yeah. And it keeps just reminding us, like, oh, yeah, but whatever he does, it's because this happened to him when he was a well, child. Well, I think it depends, it depends how you view that scene. And I agree, the, the scene with Joanna Rice actually is a bit unfortunate because it seems, rather than being... It, tends to, it seems to present it as a bit of a balance sheet. The way I read it when I watched the movie was, this isn't a balance sheet, this is about... Well, firstly, it's about a mystery. We, we shouldn't forget, you know, this is Bernard Rose solving this mystery, he believes. Um, but also, it's about these two things. Here is a man who was incredibly brutal, and in many ways, his life was thoroughly disreputable. And at the same time, here is a genius who produces music that is simply sublime and will stand the test of time forever. So you have these two things. And I think for him... For me, it was a question of explanation. When the, the lad lay in the lake with the stars around him, escaping the horrors back home, that provided some explanation. What it didn't provide was a justification, because this isn't the balance sheet, but it provided an explanation. And I thought that scene, because all the way through it, I'm watching with Jane, actually, and I must admit, it was the first two-thirds of it, it was pretty agonising, because you're seeing one of my, fa- one of my heroes getting a good old kicking, and for me, in the end, the music was be- really well played of Ode Joy and they made the, be- the father's beatings have some relevance. I think just with my general viewing of the film and not being particularly emotionally connected yeah. with it, I couldn't help but feel a slight objectification of every one of the women throughout the movie, not yeah. just by Beethoven, but by the actual film itself. Mm. They're never really given much of a voice. They're always just a, a plot device for this mystery which it cares about. And I think the film really only cares about solving this mystery and it doesn't really matter which one of these women it is. I don't even think the film cares who the Immortal Beloved is. It just cares about Beethoven. Mm. But it's going to show him in, a, I guess, a unattractive way. But still, at the end, be like, yeah, but listen to the Ode to Joy. Mm. And it does, I don't think it plays enough music throughout the film, and it's at its best when he is playing music, and I wish that they actually did that more yeah, throughout. I totally agree. I totally agree about objectifying the women. I think Isabella Rossellini, just because she's very, very good, manages to bring a bit of spark into it, in contrast to everything else in the movie. And there's weird things, like, you know, in the scene towards the end where it flashes back to when they're younger, yeah. and he goes, we need to talk. And before she can say anything... He forces his yes. mouth upon her, so she can't say anything. And he kisses her really forcefully, like the old movies. It's not good. Yeah. And she's trying to pull away, and he's continually forcing himself upon her. And then she like manages to get him off her, and then he's like, we need to talk. And I'm like, why didn't you, you keep saying this? Talk, man, talk! <laughs> Forcing your mouth yes. upon this woman is not, not helping. Talking. Yeah, absolutely right. I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I do totally agree. And there are quite a few negatives. So I think... The the chronology is very unclear to me. You know, yeah. am I going where? Well, am I? Are we going? Oh, hang on. Are we going backwards? Why? You know, yeah. I just and you it have took to, me for a while to realise that there was some sort of progression. You have yeah. to try and work out how much old makeup is Indeed. on old man, 
um, yes. to determine at what point in Beethoven's life this occurs. Yes, indeed. Is he vampiric? N- n- no. Is he just uh, a little bit frail? Okay. How, how crazy is his hair? That will tell me how deaf he is. Yes, indeed. And there's that over-focus on, oh, the on all that, is... that stuff. Well, the deafness, I thought, was also not terribly well done because... No, they pretended he couldn't hear a single yes, word anyone said indeed. from the beginning of the movie to the end. Yes. Because that scene quite... Because this is the chronology thing. That's which not is... quite right, is it? I mean, when he's a young man, they clearly don't have him as deaf. But they... For me, it's not very clear, actually. And funnily enough, some of the more effective scenes in the movie are when they're very specific about his deafness. So there's the, again, the famous occasion when he's playing the piano and he can't keep up in tune with the orchestra and everybody laughs at him. Actually, that's quite well done because they play a... They play a muddy soundtrack over it, and at one stage he loses. They, they actually, when they focus on doing it properly, it's quite well done. But very often you're not quite sure what level of deafness we're talking about here, and it seems to move in about he's very deaf or he's just a bit deaf or he's not deaf at all, which I find incredibly confusing. It just, yeah. I don't think they played that at all well. And I think that's the problem, is that is the chronology. Yes. Um, and because we don't know what year we're in, we don't know how his condition is changing, so sometimes he's completely deaf, and the next minute he's not deaf at all. And the next minute, he's partly deaf. You, you just can't keep up. You just can't keep up. And, and that means actually it loses its impact in a way, I think. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The music is fantastic, but I don't think it's as well played in this movie. And Roger Ebert wrote, apparently, or whoever was writing for Roger Ebert, wrote that it was probably even better done than Amadeus. I didn't think that at all. No, for me, in Amadeus... Yeah. But for me in Amadeus, the music was another character, as we you know, said, and as everybody has said. And here it wasn't. It was just a it, backing track. And with Amadeus, it's all about the music. Yes. I actually think the whole film is about the music. And everything else that happens is kind of just supportive to the music. Indeed. In this film, everything is about the mystery. And the music just sits in the background. Sometimes he plays it, but it's, it's always... It's only if one of the women remembers him playing music mm. that we see it. It's just not integrated in the same beautiful way that it does in Amadeus. So there's the scene which I quite liked where he's playing the piano and he's resting his head on the piano and he's yes. composing because that conveys to me how much of a genius he is because he's not really... It's almost as if he's not listening at all or not paying any attention. And he's composing this masterful work and they thought, oh, he's he's just... He's terrible. Mm. He's making these dissonant noises. What's going on? Mm. And then they're like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. But... It's also just a build up to her tapping him on the back and him lashing out at her and running away. And in this film, more than almost any other, when every time Gary Oldman shouts, you can't hear a single word that he's saying. Right. I can't hear any dialogue. He's just screaming mm. into oblivion. That's all his character does and runs away. And then that, the scene is almost only devised not to give us the music, but to show us that moment that their relationship changes. Well, the, the purpose of that scene is to do both, isn't it? Show he's a musical genius, but also show the fact that he loses the love of his life, which he does, but it's... I, Very uh, dramatic at yeah. times. Uh, almost too dramatic to be yes, believable. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, you see, never... Uh, oddly enough, the drama and 
innate unbelievableness of the story of Amadeus is in con- which you believe and get dragged into, get you know you become part of, is in opposition to this, which is actually quite realistic in many ways about how brutal Beethoven was, but never takes you with you. I think this film is <clears throat> tacky and I hate it. <laughs> You're tacky and I hate you. I honestly, Where is that a quote from? School of Rock. School of Rock. I honestly think it's so heavy-handed and clumsy, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples. The scene where his he performs badly as a child, so his dad beats him, mm. should be impactful. I hooted with <laughs> laughter at how badly it was done. Right. So the dad, I'll describe this to everyone, the dad goes up to his room, and then the dad puts his back to the camera, the camera stays still. And then he does that classic, hit your chest while you swing your arm, so it sounds like you've punched someone. And the kid has to, like, shake their head. Okay. He punches Amadeus, um, he punches Beethoven maybe 20 times, in a row, which is very shocking. Very shocking. But every one of the punches is completely unconvincing, and as they continue to go on, they superimpose old Gary Oldman's face over the back of his dad, so you're like, oh, wow, he's haunted by this memory. I couldn't tell from how violent this is. I've had to see Oldman staring wistfully off in remembrance. And then they start to play music, and each punch is timed with a symbol, so it goes... It's it's insufferable. It's honestly terrible. Right, so how did you feel about that scene? I I, I was laughing, <laughs> and then the scene the scene uh, it's the scene when Napoleon is attacking Vienna, but they can't they don't have the budget to do anything. So it's one cannon in a close up, and then one shot of a house with some smoke behind it, and then all the shots of people running around inside the house while you hear gunfire outside, and the children are clearly don't know what they're acting because they're very young. So they're laughing and giggling and running around while Isabella Rossellini is trying to act for everyone in the movie in this one scene. And then and then the little girl runs away and then the chandelier falls to the ground and we're like, oh, is she dead? I don't know. Is this meant to have landed on her? It's not very clear. And then the little boy runs and stands still and like almost waves at us. And we know what's going to happen. The shell comes in, the whole place blows up with fire. I was, I was hooting with laughter. I was very moved, listeners. I was very moved. I was in tears at this point. Because you I, can I see what was going to happen. It just, I didn't think it was done very well at all. I, I, and all she does is run, pick up a child, bring it back, go under the table. Oh, no, another child's run away. Why are the children acting like this? They're, they would be genuinely frightened, but all the there's no... You can tell in the scene that nothing's happening, hmm. and they're like just having fun, because the kids have no idea what's going on. Right. I just don't think there's any... It doesn't make logical sense right. to me why things happen. I think the, I think the sets aren't nice to look at. The scenery isn't nice. The details of the scenes aren't developed. It feels like I'm watching a television. I have to say that I thought experience. that the scenery was very gorgeous. That it looked as though they'd spent some money on the costumes and getting that right, but it never felt real. So, for example, he goes and visits Isabella Rossellini in Hungary, and everybody is wearing in gorgeous, in, you know, the full gorgeous out detail of Hungarian dress. Everything is as clean as a whistle. So it never looks, it looks like I've got a museum piece here and I'm going to put everybody up. You don't feel as though you're walking into a real environment. But in comparison to Amadeus, I think that film is beautifully shot. In this film, it's so clumsy. Mm. I hate the terrible lightning strikes that keep illuminating all the scenes. And I hate the bit where he's smashing the window with a chair and you get him just swing a chair and then cut to some glass falling and then another chair and then another cut to it doesn't he's achieving nothing with 50% of the shots in the movie it, it's just I really 
couldn't watch it. I thought it was really ugly and not enjoyable at all. You're not keen, are you? Also, it's full of Baroque architecture. The whole load of Baroque architecture, which is insufferable. I mean, it's obviously it was extremely accurate, but, you know, it's insufferable. How did you think about... What did you think about Gary Oldman? I thought... I mean, Gary gets a lot of plaudits for this. And I thought... I mean, maybe it was the way he was used, but you're concentrating on his prosthetics rather than what he's doing. And there's an awful lot of staring into space, which... You know, you kind of act, think... Act deaf. Yeah. What? Act deaf. What? Did you get that? You've got get it. it. Well done. Wow, Gary. Yes. This, you've just reminded me why you're such a great actor. Yeah. You got me there. Indeed. It, I think he's terrible. Yeah. And his his accent comes in and out. And he gets a lot of praise, actually. I mean, just the leaven the bread of our dislike, it's, it gets a lot of good reviews. So, again, Roger Ebert gave it, I think, three and a half out of four. Quite a lot of people compliment Gary's acting a lot. So other views are available. But by and large, I agree with you. For me, the final scene and the Ode to Joy is so good, for me, that I ended the movie not feeling quite as outraged as I was halfway through it. Isn't that but, easy to do when you get to end the movie with the Ode to Joy? Yeah, indeed, yes. And they, they know what they're doing. They're like, let's play his greatest... But the Lake and the Stars thing I thought was quite an effective scene. And I thought the idea of bringing, back, bringing you back to a reason for the way he might be played quite well. But his, da- his dad, even in that scene, is not a character. They're, they're all two-dimensional figures. Yes. His dad is just a silhouetted Nosferatu monster True. that moves through the street. They even have that scene where he's outside and he's like punching that woman in the street because we already know that he's horrible, but let's be reminded again, so he punches another woman. We get to watch that again. Mm. Also, the slightly unnecessary amount of nudity that happens early on in the movie. Yes, it's quite surprising, wasn't it? Uh, th- but this, I think it's, this is why I think the film is uh, objectifying the women way too much. Mm. They're really mercilessly treated, every one of them, and they're shoved aside whenever the narrative, whenever they, they're not the immortal beloved. They're just got rid of. Yeah. And I think they're physically objectified, and I just don't think they're given any justice, even though really the film is about them. Hmm. It should be like... Did you think one of the sequences worked better than the others? Do you think the Isabella Rossellini one was better? Well, Isabella Rossellini had an impression of independence, because she was a Hungarian countess for a start, and she'd gone away from Vienna, and she was living in Hungary, and you looked as though she was controlling and driving her life. And she also kind of rejects... Beethoven, she's the one that criticises him, says, you look, you're, you're, you're treating Johanna appallingly. And that's why Ludwig drops her. Um, so, yes, I thought she was better than the others. But, like, why do we need that scene? And forgive me if this is historically accurate. Mm. Why do we need that scene, which, first of all, is shoddily introduced earlier on with the, oh, it was a bad time, reaches to neck, we see scar close-up of the scar on the neck. Do you oh, remember yes. that bit? Yeah. And then we now suddenly discover, uh-oh, this is how it happened, the really shoddily shoehorned in assault mm. that happens from the Napoleon's troops mm. in the woods. Uh, the rape and the like neck slashing. Yes. Why does that need to happen? Mm. Has that got anything to do with the story? I don't think you need to... Uh, you don't need to look at me to defend the movie. You, know, I, I you think can that, simply register your protest. Yeah, I think that, I, but I also yes. wanted to ask, like, if that has something to do with it, then obviously forgive me, but I still think that's a really unnecessary yeah, scene. Yeah, I agree. And this is someone who's like, how can we show that Napoleon's army was bad? Yeah. Hmm, let's take this person that Beethoven shit on and then have her be physically assaulted. Yeah. I agree. There's no 
particular point to it as far as also I can it see. just looks ugly it's not even like it's just really i yeah. feel it's clumsy it is uh, <clears throat> you can see the seams it's all clunky the characters you don't identify with because you never see them as anything other than something and on the Schindler's screen. not charismatic because he Schindler's like, i mean i was very disappointed in his performance because i think he's done some i have to look him up to find it but i've seen him in films where i thought he was quite good he was utterly wooden because he he's going to guide us through the film really yeah he should be the Salieri of the movie. Yes. And no, not the villain, but you yeah. know how Salieri narrates yes, and describes indeed. Mozart. And he is the same, carrying that yeah, same Yeah, and he's meant to be... All yeah. his brothers are like, yo, we hate Beethoven, give us the money. Yeah. I was thinking about the Sackville Bagginses so much. Yes, indeed, yeah. They're all clamouring around, give us his money. Um, and I was like, okay, it's fine. So they all just, they all hate him and they want to take everything he has. But Schindler knows that he is more than this. Yeah. And he is going to fulfil his last will and testament and is going to solve this mystery. He's boring as hell. He, he doesn't tough. do anything. And in this, <laughs> Right, we're yeah, going to move on because, uh, you know, we can't... But, but I actually have a lot of... So when we come into okay. the history... Well, we've been to that you now. Go, then. You go and okay, then I so will we'll ask. Do on to history. So clearly the main point about this movie is for Rose to give his opinion about who the immortal beloved is. Nobody else has agreed with Rose. So none of the academics have agreed with Rose. They think it's... Po- <laughs> um, not a single one. Not a single one has said, yeah, hey, that's a good idea. And why didn't he... Because so there, are, there are academics who have their own opinions, correct? Yes, indeed. Why do you think he goes, Rose didn't... I mean, he goes through... Well, to be honest, nobody does know. And, right. you know, the, the explanations are a bit feeble. So... And he does include those main characters that who the so academics focus on. presents the various... So he's basically presenting right. the various options, and in the end he's, he's coming out with this theory. Um, so that's that. The arc of the movie and the arc of his life, Beethoven's life, is is pretty accurate. Uh, the progression of his deafness is played a little bit early, So and it's overplayed a little bit, as we've discussed, actually, that he's presented quite early as being totally deaf, when we know that he's not totally deaf. And in fact, there's a quote from a contemporary which, quite late, has Beethoven as being a help to hear quite a lot. Um, so they they play that for sympathy, as it were. But nonetheless, deaf because he was beaten by his father is the clear implication in the movie. Um, actually, nobody knows. In fact, in 1798, uh, Beethoven a bit of a bit of a row and tended to blame that on one of his outbursts of rage as, as being the start of it was when he was first had tinnitus happen to him. The scenery, I think, the costumes are rather than being other than being rather lifeless, are technically accurate and, you know, most unattractive, but technically accurate. We talked about the relationship with the brothers, so with the relationship with the brothers, it presents in a particular way, but quite but his other siblings do die and he is left with his two brothers and he has to have a look after them. So, Did he try to destroy his brother's relationship by calling the police on the woman to say that she is a whore, so they'll take her away? Not as I understand it. So as I understand it, what's true about that bit of the, that relationship is that after Casper's death, these things, he then takes her to court. I think what Rose has done is make up these earlier incidents to try and create a history of that it's not unbelievable in the in in spirit, in the sense that he immediately reacts after Casper's death to take Johanna to court and try and get Carl back. So you would imagine 
that the relationship wasn't good directly before that. Otherwise, why would he do that? Yeah, it just but it seems particularly harsh. Mm. And uh, am I correct? So the the woman that he's kissing and making out with that he gets pregnant. Yeah, is the woman that marries his brother. Yes, and that the his that's actually his son. That's what implies in the movie. Nobody else has ever implied that. But then nobody else has ever implied that he has this relationship with Jana Rice. So, you know, that's that's all part of the immortal beloved solution that Bernard is presenting, which I, nobody else has. I just supported. can't work out why in that early scene we see him pretending as if he doesn't know Joanna and referring to her as being used by everyone in the village. Why would you ever marry her? Although we can kind of see now in reflection... Well, that's exactly... But that's the whole point, isn't it? Because the story that he's building up, Rose, is that they have this passionate affair, they miss each other at the hotel, Johanna walks out, Beethoven arrives and is both frustrated that he's missed his chance in life and thinks that she's deserted him. So he overreacts against that, decides that it's all her fault and can't live with the pain. She's never told him about Carl being his son. Feels awfully forced. Well, I mean, yes, it, you'd have to you'd have to think of very very grand passions for it to make make any sense. Yeah, whatsoever. and also very very like bad luck hmm. and small coincidences in order for the, these two people to completely misunderstand what's happening yes. and then everything to unravel the way that it does. Although I doubt it's the first movie to play on small coincidences, but you know, no, but still, yeah, you anyway, can buy this one, but yeah, fair enough. So essentially, what Rose is doing, I think, all throughout the movie is doing the job of a novelist, which is to fill in the bits that we don't know and to speculate on what those might be. Therefore, as such, it has the historical accuracy of a historical novel, which is the basic framework is right. All the rest that we don't know about is, you know, speculation. Okay, fair enough. It's not terrible. It's not great, essentially. Okay. Should we score the thing then, unless you got anything to well, say about historical accuracy? Are there any specific scenes in the I'm movie? I'm thinking of letting the listeners put in the middle as listeners out of their misery. What? Okay, so, sorry, you had another question. Well, I was going to say, in terms of the historical accuracy, are there there are a lot of key scenes in the film. Are they all accurately portrayed, or, or is this um, speculative drama really imbued in everything? The set scenes you see with Beethoven performing live, these are very famous anecdotes about his life. So there's a couple of scenes we've mentioned, actually, plus at the end where I think he says the comedy is over, I think is is also supposed to be true. So in the, where you see those big set scenes, where you see the personal scenes, they might be true in spirit, but not in not necessarily in detail. So... A good example is the relationship with Casper. We know that Casper dies of consumption. We know that Beethoven is, pays his bills. Um, we don't know what goes in inside the room and, to, and him shouting and screaming at Casper and calling his wife a, a slut and all the rest of it. So, again, you know the framework. You don't know that detail about the scene. And overall, in conclusion, how did you feel about the film's portrayal of your favourite musician? Well, I was a bit gutted. Be honest, Wolf. I'm not going to lie to you. Did you know quite a lot about him before? Um, you saw this? I think I'd known that uh, he was a problematic man. That I didn't know the whole promiscuous thing. I think is speculation. Um, to add to the mystery, so there's more. I, well, I think he's built. Yeah, he's building up the the thing, the the passion thing, isn't he? Um, uh, so yes, I mean, I was cross. <laughs> End of the movie. The only thing that saved the movie for me was that last bit, as I keep saying. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I wanted him to be 
portrayed much more, either more convincingly, I mean, hopefully, more nobly, but if not that, at least more convincingly. Do you think he was, this is an accurate portrayal of him? I think it's, it's, a, it's a portrayal of him which is racked up to 11. But you can't deny, what you can't deny about Beethoven is that he was aware of his own genius and saw himself as something special, that he treated Johanna and Carl absolutely appallingly in a way that, you know, he has to be unbalanced. So hate it or loathe it, you can't, what you can't make Beethoven into is, um, you know, a, a noble, caring lovely guy nor can you make him into a loser why do you think though that when we watched Amadeus which arguably does another portrayal up, turned up to 11 that isn't positive well it's, I mean the whole thing about Amadeus is that you sympathise with him as this kind of lost genius who but surely we should be sympathising with, Beetho- uh, with Beethoven that's why I'm cross because about the movie because he's yeah, that's why I'm cross about the movie because there's plenty about Beethoven about the fact that he goes deaf in particular that you could sympathise with the fact that he produces this brilliant music that you could present better and this film does he has all these feelings he can't get out he writes these letters they don't get sent he writes those letters to his brother am yeah. I right there's also they, they don't get sent yes there's also another element to his life which is one of class distinction so because he's not an aristocrat and in actual fact at one stage his claims against Johanna fail because he can't prove that he's got an aristocratic lineage so he's constantly in all his love affairs he is thwarted by the fact that he doesn't have sufficient social status and so he's turned down or can't go any further and that's a constant theme in his life so he ends up his life alone as it were I just think that the movie fails to give him any sympathy and fails to make him a, a rounded yeah, character I agree that because he could be an anti-hero but he's not really that yes he he could be a charismatic uh, evildoer yeah but he's not really that no he, he's just kind of Gary Oldman lagged in makeup, yeah. I think, screaming. I think we have delighted the audience long enough with our, your hatred of this movie, OK? I think you're going to have to, you know, you can write it down, go, to a, go into the woods, dig a hole, and shout it into the hole. That's and bury the every copy of it, Indeed. <laughs> uh, Immortal Beloved, in that hole. I think we need to get to the scoring. And then you can vent your spleen on the scoring. Would you recommend this film? I would recommend... I mean, I really wouldn't, to be honest. Would, 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 I you, would, would you recommend anybody watches this film? I would recommend it just about for the music and for the Ode to Joy bit. Would you recommend that they go watch Bill and Ted? Yes. For that portrayal of Beethoven? Well, yes, but I don't think that's an accurate portrayal of Beethoven. Would you recommend they go watch Amadeus instead, then? Of course. Yes. Uh, okay, then, yeah. I, I, yeah, I can't recommend it. That I actually would have watched Lady Jane four times in a row <laughs> rather than watch this once. God, it's that bad then. I, I longed for Lady Jane yeah. during this movie. I was like, man, thought, Lady Jane was actually like... Did you say, did you murmur, Dudley? Dudley. <laughs> right, come on, stop tormenting our audience. What do you want? What score? Give it a score out of ten as a film. Uh, I was two or three. Okay, which are you going to go for? Uh, I mean, at least it's like competent. No, it's not really competently made. Uh, two? Two. You've gone for two. I would go four because I think the music's. So, should we go three? 
Okay, we'll go three. Three is a still pretty low score for us. That is pretty low score. And then historical accuracy, I was going to go... Oh, good Lord, I went for more than that. Um, historical accuracy, I would go for five. Okay, so is there any accuracy... I know, it, I know we don't know who the Immortal Beloved is, but even in terms of those speculative studies, is there any accuracy in anything that this film says? Oh, yes. It's not... Uh, about who the Immortal Beloved oh, would no, be. Oh, but nobody knows. I mean, the theories... Yeah, but like you know, say, no one supports his theory. No one supports his theory about that. He's the then, only person in the world... But really, nobody really supports the idea, Sal- idea that Salieri killed Mozart either. Nobody. And everybody who's commented on that film would have put the top on the lime barrel. I mean, I'm sorry, you can't have me, I can't have Bernard for that. I think what I'm trying to say is an answer is created and then a whole bunch of scenes for the movie are written, which we are all speculative, to feed that narrative, to answer that. But the same, that's the same with Amadeus. I mean, you're looking for reasons I to guess. murder this movie now. I mean, that's that's not fair. It's because it murdered me first. <laughs> I want revenge from the grave, David. I want revenge from the grave. Not in the grave, yeah. You're, you're still alive. You've made it. You come I'm out still alive, side. Father. I don't think. I don't think. Certainly, definitely, do not think it's as bad as you're you're thinking it. It's not a great movie. There's some fantastic music in it. The costumes are, are very yeah. lovingly done. It, the final scene, I think, is excellent. Genuinely good, and I think that final scene, with the, the music scene with the Ode to Joy, is excellent too. Yeah, it, it isn't. In fairness, it isn't truly offensive to watch. I just find it very boring, fine, and uh, it, unengaging. So, historical accuracy. Uh, okay, I will go. I will trust you and go with the five. We'll go for the five. Great, thank you very much. Now let's have a roundup. Oh, but actually, if if I was to get into Beethoven, yeah. And I, I can write these down. Okay, so I can like, okay. What should I go and listen You're to? You're going to ask what me that. Order? Oh, my giddy aunt. Well, I think it's very personal. The Earlier on in his career, he's got how long could this go on for? What a massive question. You should have prepared me for this. We could die here. I didn't plan you to You could do die it. here. Um, <laughs> I'm dead, David, as we, as we go. I'm a ghost, so I have the eternity to listen to I don't know. To my favourite things of Beethoven are piano sonatas, and you might not want to start with those because it takes a bit of a while to get into that, and the... The symphony is better. I would start off with the overtures. Uh, Leonora, Egmont, Coriolanus. You're going to know pretty quickly, and they're quite short bits of music. So um, Egmont, probably the best of them, in my view. The, the piano concertos, the other things which are normally thought of as his best, so four, number four and number five are generally thought of. Uh, There's a great but earlier. And then, of course, you've got the symphonies. And I'd go for my personal favourites would be uh, the odd numbers, three, five, seven, and nine. Um, six and eight are a bit more pastoral, a bit. This is more like the relaxed. opposite of the Star Trek movies. Is that right? Well, clearly, the Wrath of Khan is clearly better. Yeah, than yeah, because one is terrible, three is yeah. bad, five right. is bad. So it's yeah, it's okay. usually like the, the other numbers, way. Right. I think it's the even numbers. Okay. Um, and then finally, you have to listen to the violin concerto, which is you know a work of. Genius. Then when you get into the piano sonatas, you know you've made it. Okay. That's when I'm like, uh, you've become a, you've become a, you know, you've, he's got into your blood because they're fantastic. Okay, brilliant. Okay. Thank you. Uh, now then, is that it? Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. We, we well, got we'll do our roundup. What is roundup? Wolf and David's roundup. They're the rootness, tootness cowboys in the wild, wild west. Wolf and David's roundup. Well, good golly, Miss Molly. Paths of Glory was a hit and no mistake. 
88% of you, yes, that is 88% of you, love this war film as high as Henry V. And not one of you mentioned Kirk Douglas's chest. 12 of you have it as one of your top 10 history movies, which is quite a high number as well. Although, of course, we'll never beat Lawrence Arabia on that one. But, you know, a lot of enthusiasm hanging around. Although some of you, like Alison and Anthony, balked at the love this movie tag. Not really a movie to love in a way, however brilliant you might think it to be. Rob had no such problems, of course, and watched it once a year, apparently, which is a nice thought. An annual date for various movies, like, you know, It's a Beautiful Life, that sort of thing. There's an appreciation of the film's technical talents. Mandy loved the trenches tracking shot, which got mentioned a few times, actually. Seems to be a classic. There was admiration for Kubrick's craft as well, generally. Jonathan spoke for many of you when describing it as the most excoriating anti-film movie ever made, with Luke agreeing and adding the point that it's nice to have a film that's available with one of those internet film organisations that shall remain nameless, of course. And I think the super summary was general, if polite, disagreement with my warbling objections to the lions led by donkeys trope. Steve pointed out that this film was one of the first to take the plunge into an anti-war message. Michael, that officers are there to take responsibility anyway, so you know. And Tiffany, that this is about a quite specific incident and piece of villainy which deserves a thorough outing, which is fair enough. So I'll sit and moan about Blackadder all on my own then. There were a couple of fab facts that came out. Alan usually has a good one and didn't disappoint this time. Gave us a bit of background to the fact that the French sort of banned or strongly disencouraged the movie, which is rather extraordinary, it has to be said. I can think of quite a few films, actually, that I'd like the government to ban if they wouldn't mind listening. But anyway, the point Alan was making was that the censorship needs to be seen in the context of the colonial war in Algiers, about which, of course, we know loads, having seen the Battle of Algiers movie. The other fab fact was from Tiffany and Martin, who both sprung the news that Christiane Harlan, the actress who played the German girl who was forced to sing to the troops at the end of the movie, then married Stanley Kubrick, Stanley, and they lived happily ever after until Stanley died in 1999. Apparently, the Kubricks moved to England in the 60s, which is where Christiane still lives and paints. So, who the elbow? Very good. OK, well, I think we have murdered poor old... Ludwig. So there are alternative views available. And I should stress, there are some very positive reviews out there, including Roger Ebert. Yeah, if you, nonetheless. If you think... Nonetheless. If you think that I'm completely wrong and I've missed the whole point, please do tell me and I will try and listen. Indeed. Very good. All right. Thanks, everybody. Are you not entertained? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.